Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is a very special podcast. It's our Barbell Medicine Research Review for the month of October. If you can't tell by the music already, this one is football-themed. All the articles from this month have to do with football, three of them directly with the National Football League, and we get into a bunch of cool topics like injury, long-term mortality, pain, concussions, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, testosterone, erectile dysfunction. We're really running the gamut here uh, in addition to talking about return to play from concussions. This is a really cool edition of our research review. If you're interested in subscribing to our research review, we're going to make you a very special offer. Head over to the barbellmedicine.com website. I've linked it in the description below. You can enter the code research for half off the first month, and then it'll switch to regular payments afterward. It's a really cool resource because each article that we publish tends to be this mini systematic review of the topic, meaning that we don't just cover a single article and give our interpretation of it. Rather, we give you the whole context, the lay of the land, so you can kind of interpret this and integrate it into your own practice or just fund of knowledge. So it's really cool. Again, if you want to subscribe to our research review, head over to the barbellmedicine.com website, click the link in the description below, enter the code research, and you get half off the first month, and I'll switch to regular payments thereafter. Let's not waste any more time. Let's get into the interviews from this month's research review. Uh, my name is Austin Baraki. I'm a physician and coach with Barbell Medicine. We're back with the October edition of the Barbell Medicine Research Review podcast. This is a special, special edition. We're doing sports. Yes, sports with balls and points and such. <laughs> well, it's, you know, the NFL season's kicking off. See what I did there? And uh, <laughs> so we thought it'd be interesting to just do a whole, um, not only podcast, but a uh, research review um, edition that's completely dedicated to football. I think all of us picked a uh, NFL or a high-level football-related article. And so, Austin, what did you look at this month? Um, so basically, the, the paper that I looked at was by Nguyen and colleagues from 2019, and it really wanted, it was looking into causes of death among NFL players, um, both all-cause mortality and mortality due to specific conditions. Um, that's kind of the high-level overview of the paper. I see that we all picked like negative outcomes associated with the NFL. Like nobody yeah. was like, you know financial earnings or, or like, yeah. you know, <laughs> social credits earned from like winning a Super Bowl. But yeah, yeah. It, it turns out most of the data out there on NFL is, has to do with problems. So yeah. Uh, yeah. injuries, concussions, um, bad outcomes. So yeah, this, uh, this podcast episode is not meant to paint the NFL in a negative light, but uh, you know, the research do be like that sometimes. So <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 10,000 foot view, um, what did this study look at and what did they find? Yeah, so, so basically the, the idea here was that prior research into uh, professional football players, uh, including NFL players, has uh, tried to figure out their risk for death. And previously this had traditionally been done by comparing them to kind of controls in the general population, i.e. just regular people walking around out there. Um, and, and that data typically showed that the NFL players have had a lower, you know, uh, mortality risk, all-cause mortality risk compared to people in the general population. And, you know, on its face, that would be like, oh, man, you know, maybe playing football, at particularly at a high level, makes you healthier if you were to assume, you know, some, some direct causation there. But sure. I think upon further, you know, discussion and analysis of this stuff, people realize that there's kind of pretty substantial type of selection bias going on here. And the concern was that there's this phenomenon called the healthy worker effect. And that's basically a type of selection bias whereby, you know, you would expect that the type of individual who ends up making it to the NFL to play professionally at a high level, they're probably starting out at a baseline with some higher degree of, you know, uh, uh, genetic predisposition towards health and fitness compared to just a general population, you know, average, average Joe, so to speak. So this raised some concerns that those data sets may not be really um, as informative as we thought, because they could be confounded by this type of selection bias, that the comparisons were not really as kind of on the same playing field, so to speak. And so what the authors did in this paper was they said, well, what if we just tried to find another uh, a professional sporting population 
to try to compare them to. That would, in a sense, control for that because you're comparing, you know, genetic freaks to genetic freaks uh, across two different sports. And you could basically try to, you know, then with that factor relatively controlled for um, that you may be able to tease out uh, a, a more accurate uh, view of mortality risks, both all-cause mortality, uh, death from any cause, or cause-specific mortality. So, they, yeah, go ahead. Were you going to say something? Oh yeah, no, it's just interesting. I, I I'd never I'd heard of the healthy worker effect in uh, a few different studies, but all of them looking at uh, like all-cause mortality, never in a professional athlete sort of um, yeah. setting. But one thing this reminded me of uh, in a few of the nutrition papers that I've I've come across when trying to like tease out like nutrition, what do you know yeah. as far as like what actually moves the needle forward? There's a, a, a similar selection bias they call it the healthy eater effect, healthy persons effect in some papers, where effectively if someone can s- stick to adhere to um, a diet like something like being a vegetarian or any other sort of like fairly regimented. Um, dietary uh, pattern that the, this person is also more likely to engage in other health promoting behaviors. Yeah, totally. and, and so it's not necessarily just the food. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's one knock against like epidemiological studies. You know, people are like, "Well, you can't suss out if it's just the food or just this or just that." It's like, sure. well, that's true, but most of these things are more complex than just the food, or in this yeah. case, just the game. It's also a bit dependent on the specific type of epidemiological study. I mean, people like to criticize, you know, for in the nutritional epidemiology world, just epidemiology as a giant homogenous category, which it is definitely not, as right. we talked about, and as Alan talked about in the, in the series on our, on our website, where, you know, your best bet in that sense is, you, you know, if you set up a really well-designed prospective cohort study, that could be, you know, a kind of a, 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 an application of, of epidemiological study in a way where you have your best shot at kind of controlling for a lot of those things, particularly in a prospective fashion. But other types yeah. of epidemiological study designs, yeah, they leave you in a situation where you kind of can't control for some of those things. Yeah. I mean, there's pluses and minuses to, you know, each type of study design. So one of the pluses is like, well, this is like a real world sort of comparison because, yeah. you know, uh, you're, you're literally comparing actual people and their actual dietary patterns, or in this case, you know, uh, occupational uh, patterns. Um, But, you know, yeah, sussing out some of the nuances in, you know, uh, individual details and their effects on on health, well, you would maybe need a different study design if you thought those things were important or were just curious. But in any event, so I'm curious, I'm football curious, what was the other professional group that they uh, compared these guys to? Yeah, so so this this was uh, uh, as we were just saying, this was a retrospective uh, paper, but they basically ended up trying to uh, match their cohorts as best as they can in terms of dates, and they restricted them to the number of playing seasons and things like that between the NFL and Major League Baseball. So they ended oh. up comparing them to baseball players. So they had uh, approximately uh, basically a couple thousand uh, NFL players as well as a couple thousand Major League Baseball players. And um, they, as I said, tried to match them for time and kind of also for uh, uh, the number. Uh, they had a minimum number of seasons played to say that, you know, you were at least, um, you know, in the sport for a certain amount of time. And presumably you were good enough to be in the sport for a certain amount of time um, to try to match uh, for, for some of those things. So the question then would be, Dr. B, since I know, again, you're just a rabid zany sports fan. Those are the two adjectives that I think describe both your personality and then your interest in in professional sports uh, best. Would you rather be a football player or a soccer player? Or a baseball player, rather? Oh, man. Um, Yeah, I'd probably rather be a baseball player. Just based on based on what you you've learned, and then also just your or just, just, is that just and, your sporting and, preference? And and well, I, I played baseball for a while when I was younger, and uh, I'm not interested in the in. Oh man, just I don't know that I could get my weight up high enough and maintain it to to, to hang in the NFL. <laughs> I mean, yeah, assuming that I had the raw physical skills to play in the NFL or play uh, in the major leagues, yeah, you know. Here, there's pluses and minuses here. All right, pluses for football, the season is shorter. I mean, you're playing less games, sure. right? I think uh, so. There's there's the that whole thing, uh, you know. So I, I'm less worried about just like the daily grind compared yeah. to 
uh, MLB. On the other hand, you get hit a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Like it's actually part of the game. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, on the other hand, you don't really go into a slump if you're a professional football player. So, that you know, dealing with that. And if I had to pick one, I think, like, I think I'd be a football player. One, no one would expect it, right? (laughs) Like, Feigenbaum would be... Uh, you know the least sold jersey and just <laughs> people would think it's a joke but i, I you know I, I would prefer to be the kicker i think actually yeah. if yeah yeah well i know that even even if i did play baseball as i learned when i was a kid i probably wouldn't hang uh, i was pretty good on defense but uh, i think my absolutely horrible visual acuity uh, made me a pretty poor batter and that would be even definitely would be even worse in the major leagues <laughs> i would be able to oh, right yeah you need to have above average vision my vision is uh, several standard deviations below. Yeah, I think that we've talked about this a few times. That uh, it's the first chapter of uh, Sports Gene where they talk yeah. about uh, baseball players having above average vision. It's not necessarily their reaction time, but rather their actual just visual yeah. ability. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I think I would. I think I would choose football just for the novelty effect. But uh, I mean, realistically, I'm nowhere near being. <laughs> <laughs> capable of doing either. Um, any interesting things that uh, you think is uh, from the paper that's worth covering here, uh, or would you just direct people to to the article? Yeah, I mean, I think that the the biggest picture kind of takeaway was that they did end up finding a higher rate of all cause mortality among the NFL players, so in the order of about twenty six percent or so. Compared to the Major League Baseball players, they actually went in and broke it down a whole bunch further, looking at like cancer-related death, cardiovascular death, neurodegenerative death, a bunch of you know a bunch of other things. And I get into the details of that in the in the, the breakdown of the paper. Um, but it is it is interesting that you know compared to the traditional data sets that we had out there, where they would be comparing NFL to general population, and it's like, oh man, the NFL players are you know that way reduced all-cause mortality. They must be so much healthier and in, in doing doing great, you know, living living longer, so to speak. Uh, but then you control for the the fact that they're you know hyper athletic genetic freaks that are being selected for to end up in that uh, in that uh, sporting population. Once you control for that, they don't end up looking quite as good anymore uh, compared to some folks in other sporting contexts. All right, as we wrap up here, so we're talking about health, we're talking about all-cause mortality, and I know that you love coming up with things off the top of your head. So let's see if we can make a top five list for like health, the healthy person's effect via bar, uh, via barbell medicine. So if we could get people to do or engage in five things that w- we think would uh, move the needle forward for long-term health outcomes, I'll start. Uh, I think that everybody should be physically active in at least meeting and hopefully exceeding the physical activity guidelines for Americans, the uh, twice-weekly resistance training plus all the additional uh, aerobic uh, conditioning that is recommended. I think that's a good place to start. Uh, yep. What would you put as number as number two? These are not in like order of importance, but just five things. Well, this is kind of easy because it's uh, kind of echoing the post I made a few weeks back on this topic where I also agreed that training was actually my number one. And then next I put... Uh, that uh, I would have people maintain a healthy body weight and body composition, i.e., you know, aiming to increase their lean body mass and reduce their body fat so that their uh, waist circumference was kind of below the established risk cutoffs for their demographic um, population based on our best data that we have right now. Yep. I think that's a, that's a good one. The third item I would have is to establish care with a uh, primary care physician and uh, undergo age and demographic appropriate screening uh, uh, tests in order to reduce the risk of things that uh, we can actually detect, treat, and prevent. That would be useful. And then uh, we always plug the uh, uh, USPSTF guidelines. Yeah, their website. It was the AH AHQR. I forget the actual URL off the top of my head all the time because it's too many consonants. It's the uh, it's the yes yeah, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. So AHRQ and the yeah. website is the electronic preventative service selector epss yes so yeah it's kind of hard to remember but ahrq epss if you google that it'll take you to the sit page where you can search demographic specific information and figure out hey here are the things that are worth doing and here are the things that are not worth doing and you will note the conspicuous absence of uh, a wide variety of tests that you will see recommended elsewhere and we agree with the, the guidelines recommended there yep all right so that was number three what do you, you got a number four for us 
Yeah, uh, I would say sleep, and I would probably bump that higher than the primary care doctor and screening stuff um, to have people sure. sleep for a sufficient uh, quantity and uh, to maximize sleep quality. Yep. Uh, number five, just you know, because I like to be everyone's favorite, and everyone will hate this, but uh, would be to avoid substance abuse. Yeah. Uh, and that includes uh, tobacco, alcohol, recreational, and uh, prescription medications that are not actually prescribed to you. So all of those things wrapped into one. Uh, and then if you have an issue with those things, you should talk to your physician and uh, try to, again, uh, move the needle forward with respect to your long-term health outcomes. So yep. that's been the summary of this month's research review with Dr. Baraki. Austin, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks. All right, so we're back and I get to play host for a little while. Um, so Jordan, tell us a little bit about the uh, kind of overall topic that your paper addressed this month. Yeah, the title of the paper is uh, The Association of Concussion Symptoms with Testosterone Levels and Erectile Dysfunction in Former Professional U.S.-Style Football Players. This uh, paper actually came out pretty recently. Uh, this, it was published this year, and it is absolutely fascinating for a number of reasons. One, because I think one of the biggest things that people talk about with respect to football, as far as like uh, viewing it in a negative light, like it's so dangerous, especially from a head injury standpoint. So we get to talk about uh, traumatic brain injuries, mild traumatic brain injuries uh, being the ones that most the, the severity that's most commonly associated with concussions and concuss uh, post concussion sy symptoms. We also get to talk about testosterone, and then you know less uh, kind of. Uh, uh, exciting, yet still, you know, a question we get a lot of uh, a, a, a lot of inquiries about uh, erectile dysfunction as it pertains to low testosterone. So, really get to run the gamut here, and then uh, just happen to be done in NFL players, which uh, yeah. you know makes it relevant for our special edition. Yeah, I was curious when I saw you know you sent me the paper you were doing you were doing it on. I was like, I wonder what got you interested in this topic, but I guess it does cover a broad <laughs> swath of topics. <laughs> Yeah, I mean the the erectile dysfunction thing to me is um, probably the least interesting aspect, uh, b but it is practically sort of applicable because when you know most people who are inquiring about low testosterone to us, they're like, hey, I think I have low testosterone. What do you think I should do? So they're usually coming at it from one of two angles. One is like, I heard I need higher testosterone levels to get big and jacked and strong, yeah. and the other is like, I you know I want to. Uh, I have some either reduced libido or sexual dysfunction or something like that. And so, again, it, it was nice to review the literature related to both this specific population, but then also the what I would just call like comparative data, uh, just folks who aren't football players and, and kind of just go back through some of the epidemiology that uh, I haven't looked at in a while. And uh, yeah, this paper was super interesting. Um, and I got to also take a deep dive into CTE. If you're unfamiliar with yeah. CTE, the chronic traumatic encephalopathy, kind of a controversial diagnosis, no? Yes. Um, <laughs> well, it's it's controversial in that um, it's pretty new. So yeah. again, this was the early 2000s. You know, there appears to be this neurohistological, you know, pattern that is identified um, via you know brain tissue samples when people are and then they stain them and look at them under a microscope and are like yep this is consistent with what we think cte is um and this is on autopsy not like brain biopsies right correct correct <laughs> let's yes. be clear on that um so yeah so again when i read the original like title of this paper i was like all right this is a joke like not a joke paper like the researchers are bad or anything like that but just like ah, come on i can't talk about ed on, on this thing it's just not that interesting, and I don't know how am I gonna how am I gonna swing this? But I think getting to cover all of those things, you know, you get to talk about injury risk reduction, you get to talk about concussions and CTE, you get to talk about testosterone, and then it's uh, you know kind of practical endpoint uh, erectile dysfunction. So super super fascinating overall, and uh, this is a lengthy one. How did they uh, set set up the study in terms of the populations? Were they comparing it to general population people? No, so that's one of the uh, weaknesses of the paper. They weren't trying to like characterize 
the rates like compare to populations, you know, just gen, gen pop versus NFL players as far as like how many of these folks had low testosterone or, uh, versus gen pop or erectile yeah. dysfunction um, or even concussions, really. They, there are other papers out there that I cover in great detail about actual like concussion uh, incidents and rates and how that compares to um, at different levels of sports, so high school, college, and the professional level. So super interesting if you guys want to read about it. Check out the check out the full yeah. article, but yeah. but what they did is they they sent out this questionnaire. This is called the Football Players Health Study. They sent out this uh, this questionnaire to anybody who played in the NFL after 1960. Basically, that's when they adopted the uh, hard plastic helmets. Gotcha. So that's yeah. kind of what they were correcting for. Even though there's been multiple very uh, iterations of that helmet yeah. since then, um, so they sent out almost 15,000 questionnaires and got 3,500 back. So. Yeah. You know, twenty five percent response kind of, rate. Kind of, kind of typical for these kind of studies, right? Right, but you know, cast a big net, you're going to catch you know yeah. a substantial amount of fish here. Sure. And uh, so what they did is they asked them, you know, basically these these questions that were to assess, hey, did you ever have a concussion? They didn't use that language, but you know, the questions that they asked included like loss of consciousness or like um, symptoms of amnesia. Uh, where they basically have problems recalling stuff um, happening directly before, directly after uh, a hit. And so uh, they were trying to to figure out how, you know how many concussions on average this population had. Then they asked them, "Hey, have you ever been told or treated for low testosterone by a medical professional?" That's how they assessed low testosterone. Mm -hmm. And then for for erectile dysfunction, it was the same thing. Have you ever been told that you had or treated for erectile dysfunction? So another quibble, you know, because you got to have quibbles and criticisms of the papers. Sure. They didn't actually directly measure testosterone levels in the correct yeah. manner to assess for this. Yeah. And, and and similarly, erectile dysfunction is kind of, you know, needs needs to you need to go through this whole sort of workup to make sure that it's accurately diagnosed. But in any event, they came up with some numbers afterwards and then uh, tried to make this uh, connection between concussions and um, and these two conditions. So the interesting thing is so on average in in America like per year, we get about two and a half million adults who get a mild traumatic brain injury per, per year. It's two and a half million, which is uh, substantial. Well, most of them come from motor vehicle accidents in the younger population yeah. or falls yeah. in the older population. Sure. Um, and only about 10% come from recreational accidents, which would be like uh, you know sports. But when you lump in youth and adults together, you're looking at about 1.6 to 2 million mild traumatic brain injuries per year. Uh, and so, and when you restrict that just down to like sports, like football, if you're a high school football football player, you have a twenty percent chance of getting a mild traumatic brain injury, which is uh, consistent with a concussion uh, each season. And college level, it's about ten percent, and then in football, it's a little higher than that, about twelve to fifteen percent, depending on which numbers you use. Huh. Um, yeah, it's a which is lower you know, than I would have expected, I guess. Yeah, well, so the the thing is, even though people are getting you know bigger, stronger, and likely hitting harder. Um, one mechanism is that you're just getting a much smaller sample size and a much more trained population too, yeah. and then also probably the underreporting goes up. Sure. Um, so, in fact, when you look at data from uh, the mid 2000s compared to now, it appeared to be like this decline in uh, concussions for for a little bit, and part of that was due to like uh, less sensitive screening techniques. Huh. So, in any event, that's it's all in the paper, but. Uh, <laughs> They, they, they made this hypothesis that people who had more concussions would have lower testosterone levels and therefore suffer more ED. That was the kind of major underlying hypothesis. The idea being, if you got hit in the head enough times, one, uh, one thing that can happen when you have these mild traumatic brain injuries is you can actually damage the pituitary, uh, uh, yeah. the pituitary gland. And so, and it can cause abnormalities in its function. So they call this post-traumatic hypopituitaryism. Effectively, you, you knocked the pituitary around enough, and it stops spitting out all of these trophic hormones and signaling hormones like it should. And so, then yeah, you would get lower. There's definitely mechanistic plausibility there from that standpoint. I would say. Yep. Yep. And that's. I mean, unfortunately, and again, I cover this in, in great detail because. Uh, as I want to do, yeah. <laughs> there's the data supporting this post-traumatic uh, hypopituitarism. It definitely exists, but it's not necessarily on solid ground. From like a, yep, this happens regularly, yeah. like frequently, 
and like expectedly yeah, I mean, we even. See, we see patients who have, you know, post motor vehicle accident, not infrequently, but uh, the, the, the case of somebody coming in who has like a severed pituitary stalk from their car crash is definitely very rare. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And, and, you know, one other issue uh, when assessing some of this data, it, a lot of it's old, like older. We're talking like 70s and 80s. And you're like, if this was like a bona fide kind of thing, you know, that happened with regularity, I would expect to see more robust recent literature like that's with just better techniques. But I'm not saying that it doesn't exist because I think that, again, it's plausible, but that, that yeah. was the underlying idea. Yeah. So 10,000 foot view, 10,000 foot view. Uh, yes, having more reported concussions as uh, diagnosed by this questionnaire was associated with a greater risk of having low testosterone in this population of about 3,500 responders in the NFL. Um, and same with uh, uh, erectile dysfunction. That, that being said, the prevalence of low testosterone and erectile dysfunction is way, way less in this population than it is in the general population. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, again, that, that healthy, uh, uh, healthy occupation effect, perhaps. Yeah, I'm, I'm also thinking of a few other like confounders that I'm sure you address. I mean, not only the, the limited uh, response rate, but even like if somebody has post-concussive symptoms, like one post-concussive symptom is like fatigue. And then what happens if somebody comes in and they're fatigued? Well, they're more likely to be tested for something yep. like testosterone, and you may find it, even if it's not necessarily the driving cause of the individual's fatigue, and then that would be a positive result in this kind of a sample. So there's some there's some trickiness to it, particularly, like you said, because they didn't actually measure testosterone levels as well. Correct. Yeah, they basically just asked them, like, has anybody ever told you, any yeah. medical <laughs> professional ever told you that you have low yeah. testosterone? And I can just yeah. imagine a situation like... Yeah, <laughs> you know, especially with all those low T commercials that had been exactly. coming out. Yeah, yeah, there was a health professional on TV that told me that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, okay, <laughs> are are you tired? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's pretty pretty interesting stuff overall. And then um, the other things that I think are useful in this article that I'll I'll save most of them for uh, for people who read it. I go through um, sort of indications to be actually tested for uh, low testosterone um, and and uh, also. Um, some similar things about erectile dysfunction because again, people are going to want to know. Yeah, and that, uh, that all the time. yeah. So I thought, uh, you know, similar to the way we wrapped up your your part of the um, of this research review, or I, we talked about, you know, five tips uh, for promoting, you know, long term health health improvements. Um, I just wanted to take like uh, the same sort of approach towards optimizing your testosterone level to the degree that it matters, uh, sure. which I think you and I both agree that uh, the actual level within the normal range does not matter as long as you're in the normal range because it goes up and down and we expect it to, to vary wildly and um, you know it doesn't really correlate with strength, performance, erectile you know uh, dysfunction or anything like that as long as it's in a normal range. But the degree to which you could actually influence a healthy testosterone level, I think, is is something that the uh, the lay strength conditioning field kind of harps on and on about. And there are some things that could actually improve your testosterone levels. So I'll start with one: correcting underlying obesity. Uh, if we define obesity by carrying too much body fat, um, that can significantly significantly uh, and negatively inc uh, affect your testosterone levels. Um, so carrying too much body fat uh, can is uh, problematic in this way, and so it, it doesn't mean that if you actually have low testosterone that that's diagnosed appropriately and and correctly based on symptoms, that you know just losing weight is the answer. But sometimes it is. And, oh, yeah. uh, to, to, I think we've both probably seen people who've lost a substantial amount of body fat, or sometimes in some cases not even that substantial of an amount of body fat, and their testosterone levels normalize. Yep, correct. So, like step one, if your testosterone levels are low, uh, attempting to correct that underlying adiposity or carrying too much body fat is uh, one tip towards uh, improving your testosterone levels to the degree that you would you would want to improve them. Uh, yep. What do you What do you got for number two? Yeah, I'd probably look at somebody's. Uh, I'd probably look at evaluating for sleep apnea and making sure that that's not present and uh, treating it if 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 it is present, which. Oftentimes, it is uh, associated with obesity, so that could be a, a kind of uh, 
attacking attack yeah attacking two things at the same time get getting the excess body fat down can sometimes cure sleep apnea but even if it doesn't or if it's not present then treating that directly can be helpful in this situation yep yep uh third thing i would have people do is uh again and this is very actually kind of similar to our the health <laughs> top five things but undergoing age and demographic appropriate screening uh, and in particular i'm thinking of hiv which uh, nobody wants to talk about but um, if you have untreated uh, HIV and uh, that's affecting you, um, that can certainly cause uh, low testosterone, and uh, it would be problematic to try to treat that without addressing the underlying pathology. And so, it should be screened appropriately for that. Yeah, I would ju- I would probably broaden that to just you know any untreated medical conditions that are that are present, particularly any untreated inflammatory conditions that are present. Um, which is a pretty broad category. Yeah, but, I see but, what you did there. But all, but but all of those are things that can be associated with with low testosterone and, and merit direct treatment. I've seen, you know, like I, I oftentimes talk about the the lowest testosterone level I, I ever saw was a, a value of just straight up zero in a patient who had uh, who had AIDS. Um, but also, you know, people who have um, various autoimmune conditions, uh, chronic organ diseases, and, and things like that. Those are all uh, uh, conditions that in, it frequently are associated with kind of a, a chronic systemic inflammation that when treated can can uh, improve the situation as well. Yep. That, and I'll, I can lump in there like type 2 diabetes, making sure that you're screened and treated, treating that appropriately, which ties in with the weight loss and also exercise yeah. uh, for that. Because apparently, and I didn't know that it was actually this common for the, for the comorbidity, but like about one third of, of men with type 2 diabetes have like hypogonadism. I actually didn't know that it was that high, but uh, found that in a few different sources that around yeah. that same number. And I was like, huh. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Pl- pl- it's plausible. I just didn't know that, you know, that's a lot. It's a lot of people. And it's, and it's potentially reversible with, with lifestyle measures, meaning that they don't all need to, you know, start immediately injecting testosterone for the rest of their lives because uh, most people don't actually want to do that. Right. And the final thing is a two parter. Uh, so you said sleep apnea, and I'll, I will tack on to that and just say sleep is a general construct. Yeah. Um, if you're not sleeping enough, and if you're not sleeping regularly, um, for whatever underlying reason, if it's primary insomnia, um, I would get evaluated for that. If it's depression, anxiety, or other mood disorder, I would get evaluated and seek you know professional care for that. If it's lifestyle related, I would address those factors that are preventing your normal sleep-wake cycles because you're really, really just messing with your testosterone, uh, the pulsatile release of trophic hormones responsible for stimulating testosterone production. And so, really hard to get around that even if you're doing everything else right. Uh, so, making sure you're getting enough sleep and it's regular and not fitful sleep. So, that goes in with the sleep apnea. Yeah. Uh, yes. And then the la- like the addition additional thing, you'll notice a dis- distinct lack of like Make sure that you're getting enough supplemental vitamin D or sunlight or you know saturated fat or you know all of these other things. Uh, that's because we don't think those things move the needle forward. Uh, ra- rather, the things that we listed are more uh, beneficial for actually you know increasing testosterone or, or otherwise just optimizing the function of your the existing testosterone that you have. And uh, so instead of and, like and going coming to... along with a whole bunch of other well-established yeah. benefits, um, I think I think the only other uh, uh, one that I think is just important to mention is uh, as as we said in the health part, um, substance abuse in particular, alcohol, and actually if somebody's taking narcotic or opioid pain medications, both of those can induce hypogonadism. So reducing excess alcohol intake and getting trying to wean off of those opioid pain medications if somebody's on them are both ways to uh, uh, improve uh, hypogonadism as well. The parting shot is if you're doing all those things, great. You, I wouldn't worry about your testosterone because it probably doesn't matter. Probably doesn't matter. If you're having symptoms uh, that are indicative of low testosterone or suggestive of low testosterone, you know, talk to your doctor about it yep. um, and, and make sure that you get evaluated properly yeah, rather than just uh, self-treating. Yep, that's big. Get it tested properly, I would say. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. How many? I mean, I don't. It, it certainly hasn't been like hundreds of people, but in the certainly in the multiple num, uh, 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 numbers of ten. You know, I'm, I'm somewhere in the twenty, thirty, probably of people who, yeah, I felt like I had low testosterone, 
And so I started self self treating, and I was like, "Okay, so you've never been evaluated?" And like, <laughs> no, I just felt like it, you know. And then I thought I would treat it. It's like, okay, for what, well, <laughs> for what other medical condition do people do this? It's funny. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I think there's just again this folklore around testosterone, like, oh, if you, you know. Uh, start supplementing with testosterone, your whole life's going to change. And you know, there's definitely a placebo effect to anabolic steroids. There's definitely real, direct, mechanistic, you know, actions that anabolic yeah. steroids have. Uh, so I, I get it. But at the same time, like if you actually do need treatment, you'd prefer that to be administered and monitored by a medical professional. And to do that, you need to be diagnosed appropriately. And if you start self-medicating, it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to do that until you uh, come off for a long yeah. period of time. Yeah. So. General badness. Uh, on another note, I'm curious, uh, in your prior sporting history, like with motocross and stuff, did you ever sustain any concussions? Uh, yes. Yeah. So, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, and, and to be fair, like, it's not like anybody was doing a Glasgow coma scale on me. So sure. just background knowledge for listeners at home, one of the, the most common ways to assess whether somebody's had a, a mild traumatic brain injury or any traumatic brain injury at all is uh, using the Glasgow uh, coma scale. And so you, you get a score based on eye movement, verbal and motor responses, right? The max score is 15, um, lowest score is a three. So, uh, in any event, if, if you have a score of, uh, 13 to 15, that's mild traumatic brain injury. If you have a score of eight to 12, that's moderate. If it's three to eight, that's severe. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. Co- coma for, for, for a substantial portion of that. So in any event, it's not like anybody trackside was like assessing a GCS on me, yeah. the, <laughs> but uh, I definitely knocked myself unconscious uh, at least three times that I can remember. Yeah, all of them co-occurring with significant other injuries, including at least one fracture at each one of those. Uh, one, wow. I when I, <laughs> yeah, when I uh, had this had the uh, broke the distal end of my right femur off, uh, which required four screws and a plate. Uh, one when I did my collarbone. Uh, and I was stuck in mud. I, it was so funny. I flipped over, like excite bike crash, and then when I fell on outstretched arms, <laughs> oh yeah. I, I hit an embankment. Like I literally like put both hands out like directly into a, a vertical embankment right in front of me, and it, yeah, snapped my collarbone and my boots. I like was landed in mud, so I was standing upright, passed out uh, <laughs> until I came to, and I was like, oh, there's a deformity on my right side and a lot of pain. Hmm, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> and then uh, when I dislocated my hip, yeah, yeah, hit my head pretty good. If I, if so, I had to guess, I think I've sustained one from a snowboarding accident, but I think that's about it. I thought you were going to say swimming, like you just ran into the wall. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> I wonder. I mean, that's got to happen, right? Uh, I don't know how it would happen, but I, I suppose anything's possible. <laughs> I mean, if you're as fast as you know some of these, maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Anyway, all right. Now we're just blathering. So, hey, Doctor B, thank you for being the host. Yeah, uh, sure. you got to temporarily take over for the most handsome doctor in North America. Yeah, I'll hand over the reins. <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs> this has been uh, my contribution for the October Barbell Medicine Research Review. Thanks for listening. I am Dr. Michael Ray. I'm a chiropractor in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and I work for Barbell Medicine's pain and rehab uh, department remotely. Uh, So this month, we're back with another edition of our Research Review Podcast. We're going to do these each month. Uh, This is a special edition, which you guys already know from the intro music and from my overly dramatic introduction. Um, So we're all talking about the NFL and different things that happen with uh, football players in general. Uh, Dr. Ray, what did you decide to uh, dig into this month? Yeah, so uh, this one was interesting for me, mostly because I'll be upfront. I'm not a huge fan of the NFL. Um, I watch college football, but not so much NFL. So this took a little bit of time to figure what to write about, but I found an interesting article by Morris et al. that looked at kind of uh, the best way I could describe it is comorbidities that occur in retired NFL players. And so when the, you say when you say comorbidities, just for the if the listeners aren't a uh, member of our research review group, they may not have run into that word before. What do you what do you mean when you when you say that word? Yeah, various like health issues as we would call them, 
Uh, oddly, the, this paper calls them uh, afflictions, which I thought was interesting because that kind of naturally makes people think like they're suffering. This just but, makes me think of like the late '90s, early 2000s fashion craze, where grown men would be wearing like angels of darkness that were bedazzled on their t-shirt uh, to go with their tap-out shorts and uh, white sunglasses. Not that like I had that. any of these items. Of <laughs> <laughs> like the early days of like UFC or something. That's right. Uh, that's, yeah. that's right. So not not those not that type of affliction, but just uh, just diseases, health health issues um, that yeah. people have uh, associated with playing in the in the NFL. Correct. Uh, so like heart disease, high cholesterol, diabetes. Uh, they label sleep apnea as one. Neurocognitive deficits like dementia and Alzheimer's stuff like that that they were looking at. Very interesting. So this has definitely some overlap with what Dr. Baraki looked into and what I looked into this month. Uh, so ten thousand foot view. What does it look like if you're an NFL player and you get out of the league with respect to your health? Yeah, so I kind of wrote this from the perspective of like looking at it from a cost analysis or risk versus benefits of like, okay, if I'm making the decision of wanting to play in the NFL, what are my risks? And then obviously benefits are like a lot of money and status. So does my participation in the NFL do the risks that way the benefits or vice versa is kind of a, how I approach this discussion. And it was really an overwhelming just kind of shrug. Like, it, they have, um, so what the main finding was is they, they basically did a, a retrospective questionnaire. So they sent out a bunch of questionnaires to around like 13,000 former NFL players. They got a, a very small response rate, is like 28%. So less than 4,000 NFL players responded. So there's already like some selection bias issues there, but uh, which I discussed in the article. But their main finding was like people over the age of 55 that were a prior NFL player, they were at more risk for developing what they called single system afflictions. And usually this was like sleep apnea, persistent pain, or cardiometabolic issues. And they also found race and BMI to also be associated. And then for multi-system afflictions, they found that age was still one of the uh, primary predictors for multi-system. They found that about 27% of former NFL players had more than one affliction, and about 9% had more than two, uh, two afflictions. Now, where this gets like really weird is age wasn't as predictive for the neurocognitive affliction, meaning uh, it wasn't just people that appeared at risk over the age of 55, but also people that were at the ages of uh, 35 to 54 age groups as well were showing equal amounts of risk for developing neurocognitive issues down the road. So again, like Alzheimer's, dementia. But when I looked at like comparing this, this finding to, because if you're going to weigh like the risk versus benefits, you have to look at general population. And that's one of the downfalls of this article is they didn't do a comparative analysis of what they found for comorbidity rates and former NFL players to what you would see in the general population. Well, yeah, because yeah, what you're trying to figure out is if, if playing in the NFL appears to be like a almost independent risk factor or predictor of having, uh, as these authors would call, afflictions. So that's what you would like to do. <laughs> but it's, if you're telling me they didn't do that, that, that makes me uh, scratch my head a little bit and, and say, D WTF, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I was like, well, this is all really fine and good. And this is a, it's a cool study to conduct and see what's happening. Um, but they didn't do an comparative analysis. And like the, the NCOA, the National Council on Aging, says around 80% of adults over the age of 65 have at least one condition and 68% have two or more. So like mm -hmm. looking at that just, you know, comparatively, it, it, it seems like it's not worse. And in fact, it may be less than what we're seeing in the general population. So, yeah, I mean, it's funny, that, it's funny that this was like the paper and the, and then also like how they – I analyzed it. It's funny that this all happened because honestly, so yesterday I was playing golf with my dad uh, and, you know, he, he, he is a big barbell medicine supporter, but he's, uh, he's, he's, he's what I call a surface level fan. Not because he doesn't like our stuff, but, you know, consuming all of our content, that's, you got, you got to want it. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so, so he's not up on, on, uh, you know, this, this stuff with respect to injuries and pain and, you know, the, the idea that this mechanical wear and tear is, uh, you know, not the model that we use to, uh, to discuss this stuff. So he was saying, you know, it just, if I wasn't so active earlier in life, if I, if I didn't play all these sports and have all these injuries, I probably wouldn't have 
you know, some of these aches and pains that I do now. And I was thinking in my head, I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Not only because I'm like, yo, dad, you know, like what we do for, for, for living here. Right. Um, But then also, also like just, so that's one, that's one possible like analysis or, or, or hypothesis you could have rather. Right. The, the alternative hypothesis is that being an athlete and being active lifelong can actually be protective right. in at some level. Um, and, and the third hypothesis is that, that there's an inflection point where some level of competitiveness or the steps needed to be competitive at a certain level may in fact, uh, you know, uh, uh, lead to health problems, uh, long-term compared to, you know, staying under that threshold or, or whatever. There's just a point where you've you've compromised too many things um, in order to be successful at a yeah. particular sport. So, and that's kind of the, the camp I fall into. And I was trying to have this conversation with him on the ninth tee box. And then I realized like, you know, this just happen. isn't, yeah, it's not going to happen. I should just go slice, slice this drive into the woods. Yeah. So, uh, okay. Did you happen <laughs> to find that, uh, that number from the NCOA? Yeah, yeah. So it was. Uh, that's what I was reading on the, the quote. I mean, it's about eighty eighty percent of Americans have, you know, over the age of sixty five, have at least one health condition, uh, and then another sixty eight percent have at least two. And, and they included in the NCOA when they looked at this, the kind of main conditions were um, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, Alzheimer's and dementia, depression, heart failure, chronic kidney disease, diabetes ischemic or coronary heart disease, arthritis, high cholesterol, and hypertension. So very similar conditions were being examined uh, by both of these kind of entities. And at that rate, you know, if we were to run a comparative analysis, I would imagine that you're going to see that there is a protective mechanism at some level where we're seeing decreased rates for former NFL players. But I'm with you on that, like, that third point you were talking about. There's got to, there's probably a very large spectrum. And at some point, there's a tipping point where, too much has been incurred from competitive gameplay, and there are going to be some long-term net negatives. I just don't think we have any idea where we're at on that spectrum and how meaningful that is for anyone. Yeah, well, yeah, I agree. And I also think that that, you know, if we're going to graph this where there's like the, a phase change sort of situation that happens where it's like, oh, you've gone too far. You know, the Keanu Reeves thing, we've gone too far. Right. Like, <laughs> uh, that's going to happen at different points for each you know, individual, exactly. right? So like, so making a generalized statement is going to be difficult. And, and, I, and I think it should be, I should be clear here when I'm talking about that sort of phase change, that inflection point where, you know, all this extra activity or, or doesn't seem to be health promoting in the long term anymore. I, I don't necessarily mean from a wear and tear standpoint. I mean, more from uh, uh, either substance abuse can be, can be rampant at, you know, very high levels of competition, uh, the training demands can, you know, be very, very high that, you know, ultimately, you know, this is the same thing you see in people who are like ultra endurance athletes. And you're yeah. thinking like, wow, all this cardio, bro. And, you know, still, still have a, a somewhat increased risk of, of certain disease processes. And it's like, yeah, well, it turns out you lose that sort of protective effect if you, if you go too far, but it, I don't mean this sort of like mechanical thing where it's like, yeah, you just no. used your knees too much. Right. You, you used your back too much. Cause, cause if I was going to look at like a handful of things that are like very predictive of people having joint pain, you know, when they're older, one is going to be being sedentary. Two is going to be being overweight or obese. Three is going to be having like no history of physical activity, right. you know, all of, all of these things. And, and then, um, so yeah, I think that I should make that clear. Um, so it, it sounds like when you, you know, went through this whole thing. I mean, if you had to come down on, uh, uh, and make a decision, like, is it worse to be an NFL athlete or, or not? So, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with, um, so I basically close with a quote from Hunter S Thompson. Are you familiar with him? Uh-uh. Uh, it, which is like a letter he wrote to his friend, Hume Logan about life advice. Um, and <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which is basically like, it's very human of you to ask for my advice about what to do with your life, but ultimately you'd have to be an egomaniac to inform someone else, you know, what they should go do in their life path. And that's basically how I close. Like, it it is an overwhelming shrug. Like, I imagine that the factors in trying to make the decision about whether you should or shouldn't play in the NFL are innumerable, and they're both intrinsic and extrinsic to the human being trying to make that decision. And I don't know that there's like any data to say you should or shouldn't do this. Yeah, sure. Just comes down on like what your values are, what you want out of life. 
etc and what your opportunities are yeah yeah uh so that's yeah i don't know that's that's going to be be an interesting sort of um uh experiment to uh, to just ask people like hey you know surface level do you think you'd want to be in the nfl and like you know here are the perceived uh, potential benefits and then here are the perceived potential risks you know if you had an average career and, and all this other sort of stuff it'd be interesting to see where people fell um because there's a few studies uh, looking at like uh, this is particularly with substance abuse and elite level athletes. It's like, hey, um, if you t- uh, took PEDs, um, uh, you would win, you know, all these medals or all these championships or all these competitions in the next five years. Uh, but you would die, you know, some some amount of time early. I think it's twenty years early, or whatever. Uh, but you would win everything in the next few years. Uh, would you do it? Yeah. And I and I and I think the study offhand that I'm recalling, like seventy percent of respondents were like, uh, yeah, I would do it. Yeah. who are already athletes and it's like interesting uh i know there's been some questioning about that actual data but it's like i think it's easier for people to say yeah i would do this thing that maybe has some negative outcomes associated with it uh if they as long as they they know that there's no real potential for them to actually go through it because they're they imagine just this different life and they think that would be fun but yeah. i think we're just really shitty at like making predictions so i don't know that we're ever <laughs> Like truly yeah. capable to weigh all the possible risks we can come up with and all the positive benefits. So we just kind of, it, it probably really is just an overwhelming shrug and hope for the best in a lot of a lot of these like life career choice decisions. Yeah. Uh, so this has been Dr. Michael Ray. We're on the NFL edition Barbell Medicine Research Review. Uh, Dr. Ray, you want to plug this uh, research review for the listeners at home? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean. Obviously, I'm biased, but I think it's one of the, the best resources out there for trying to bridge whatever you're doing in life, whether you are a rehab professional or a doctor, physician, coach, personal trainer, or just a general public person who wants to know more about uh, all of these facets that we write about from health and wellness, and fitness and strength training and um, pain and rehab. I mean, it is uh, very much like an amalgamation of a lot of different topics. And we try to be both skeptical and critical, but also pragmatic with the information. So you kind of walk away with some key points from research articles that we write about. And uh, I mean, for the price point and all, I think personally that it's uh, a great resource for anyone to try to, quote unquote, bridge the gap between the research world and practical life. I like it. And I actually think it just one one thing bears just uh, uh, re- repeating it in a way. Um, there are other research review services out there and i i I think all of them have uh, the utility and and you know if you really want to learn this stuff subscribe to all of them get get your information but one thing that is different about ours is that we're not just reviewing a single paper and you know talking about it rather it's like here's this paper how does it fit into the context of our interests and, and like this whole like health wellness strength conditioning field and then what are this what's the supporting evidence for that context so it's like if you're talking about programming for example or programming variable like training volume it's not just here's one paper on volume here's what we think right it's this is the whole topic as far as we understand it right now here's how this paper fits into that whole topic and it's almost, uh it's often almost like it's almost like our personal systematic review of yeah the right. totality of evidence it, they, these get lengthy for sure yes my submission this month Apologies in advance is twenty pages. I'm sorry, but <laughs> you know when you're talking about stuff like concussions and CTEs and and testosterone and all that other sort of stuff, you you uh, you gotta uh, do your due, due diligence with uh, each one of those topics. So, in any event, Dr. Ray, thanks for joining us. We'll uh, we'll have you on here next month for the next edition of the Barbell Medicine Research Review. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. My name is Derek Miles. I'm a physical therapist at Stanford Children's Hospital. I am also part of the pain and rehab team at Barbell Medicine. We are back this month, the October Barbell Medicine Research Review. We're doing our podcast. We're here with Dr. Derek Miles. Derek, what did you look at this month? This month, I looked at a comparison study of how return to sport criteria has changed post-concussion over the past 20 years. So I talked about on my podcast segment a little bit about um, kind of the definition for uh, the different types of traumatic brain injury. So using the Glasgow Coma Scale and that mild traumatic brain injury typically is associated with uh, the uh, receiving a diagnosis of concussion, although there's 
quite a bit of wiggle room there, and I think you're going to fill us in. So tell us where we started with respect to diagnosing concussions and where we're at now. Well, mild traumatic brain injury is a somewhat of a paradox out of the gate because any brain injury, it's, it's hard to really classify in the mild scale. But really, initially, we didn't have a good definition, and we're slowly working towards a better one. Um, but under the criteria, originally, it was the Glasgow Coma Scale, which doesn't necessarily pick up subtle deficits that you're going to see in athletes. But this has really changed over the past few years, especially with the most recent position statement on concussion, to where they really advocate for practitioners who are familiar with the athlete being the one doing the diagnostic criteria so that they can check subtle differences in either personality, recall, um, things that only someone familiar with the athlete themselves would know. So are they using, do they have a, uh, what's the name of the new criteria? It's not the four. Uh, criteria. It's a, the, the SCAT 5. SCAT 5, okay, great, great. And so what are the elements of the SCAT 5? Because I, I was telling them that the, and the GCS, the Glasgow Coma Scale, basically you're looking at eye movements, verbal and motor responses. And, uh, and, it, and you're exactly right. It's not very sensitive to small deficits. Uh, and, and in particular, when you're talking about people who actually have concussions, which are characterized by uh, anterograde and retrograde amnesia, you know, potential plus or minus a loss of consciousness and some other symptoms, you might not, you might miss all of those things, right? So if a person can is opening their eyes, blinking, and can respond to verbal commands appropriately and like move their limbs appropriately, you might say, oh, it's GCS 15, and you might actually, you know, miss any sort of diagnosis uh, of concussion uh, in that person. So in the SCAT 5, what, what kind of elements are they using there? Well, in the two articles I reviewed, the original one was the Glasgow Coma Scale. And then even from where this one, or the second study was from 2014 to 2017, they were only using the SCAT 3. So even then, it wasn't the more tuned out version of what we're getting now. And really, the on-field assessment is taking note of red flags, checking for observable signs of concussion, um, a memory assessment, and then examining the level of consciousness using the Glasgow Coma Scale and cervical spine assessment. So it's a much more built-out version of what we originally used. So they're using the GCS. And they're they're taking a like a physical inventory of the cervical spine, making sure that there it you know doesn't appear to have any fractures or injuries otherwise to the to the neck. And then what are the elements? The other elements is it is it question based? Is it like a motor task? Is it something else? Um, well, so there's a few different ways. And part of the second study, the care trial, actually used let individual institutions come up with their own criteria. And some of them did use memory-based questionnaires um, focusing on re recall, whereas others use things like a reflex test, which is essentially like how fast you can catch something that's being dropped in front of you as a means of determining. Part of the problem is we still don't have a gold standard in normative values and the variance for what constitutes normative values is very athlete specific. So one of the biggest things even out of this was an avocation for preseason screening so that you had an athlete's baseline. The problem with that when you start talking about it in relation to youth athletes is development is so drastic. A lot of times the younger population that even your baseline preseason may not give you a good indication of where that athlete is developmentally later in the season. Right. Yeah. Cause they've actually, uh, uh, more, uh, uh, biologically aged substantially since the preseason till to current. Um, and there's also logistical issues with making sure that every athlete actually has one of these, you know, scat five or previously scat three scores on file where you're like, and then, and then retrieving those in the middle of a game. Um, but what is your overall sense as far as the utility of this type of concussion screen compared to what just using the GCS scale? Well, I would say it's much more sensitive because you're going to pick up subtleties um, versus like, are you awake? Uh, you know, Glasgow Coma Scale doesn't really give us a really fine tuned. And this does get into some of the semantics of it being a mild traumatic brain injury. And that we, if it's mild, we would expect the symptoms to be mild as well. And having some deviations in recall or, you know, some... <sighs> Any type of symptoms that would classify an athlete as having a deficit either in memory reflex or you know disposition is enough to pull an athlete from the game. And current recommendations are if there is suspicion of concussion, that athlete does need to be removed um, if they can't complete a battery of recall and reflexes. 
So have you ever worked the sideline like where you were responsible for doing this? Um, I have, but it's been years ago now. Yeah, same, same. It's the, and honestly, like that's a big responsibility. I, I mean, I, I I know that people do this day in and day out and, and they just like, hey, well, you come adequately prepared, you can do the job. But it's still like, you know, especially when the stakes are high. Uh, yeah, having that rest on your shoulders and, and uh, there's a lot of pressure. So that's uh, not a job that I, I envy. Um, so a question, a question here. Do the authors make any like substantive recommendations for like we should definitely use this going forward, or is it more like here's a tool we like it, let's see what happens? Well, it was interesting in this study because it wasn't so much a comparison of the tools themselves as the timeline for return to sport criteria. And what you really saw is over the last twenty years, there's been substantially more time missed from sport and. From the actual original NCAA study, it was less than four days missed, which to all of us now would probably sound just like less than four days is just asinine. And over the last two decades, you've seen it shift more towards a little less than 13 days, which is still funny because what we really see out of the evidence is most things recommend two weeks. But in the actual NCAA cohort, if you think about missing two weeks, there's an good chance you're missing over 20% of the season at that point, which is probably still a case for us likely forcing athletes back in. But you also see that we have tripled the amount of time that athletes take away from it. And we really have seen evidence that rest is our biggest factor in letting things heal out of this. So we're, we're moving in the right direction. And it also makes it hard to compare studies from 20 years ago in athlete management with today's studies, because we are much more conservative in the means that we treat our athletes status post-concussion. What do you, uh, what do you think activities that people should and shouldn't be engaging in post-concussion? So they're out, they're out, let's say on average two weeks out from their sport, you think they can exercise? Well, there's actually a lot of advocacy for exercise and it's all to what the athlete can tolerate, which I know sounds just absolutely mind blowing as far as recommendations, but the whole dogma of an athlete should only rest status post concussion has really been dispelled. And there's increasing evidence that you should be participating in some low intensity aerobic exercise. Initially, we don't really have anything for anaerobic as far as the data goes yet. But once you start, and this gets back to the conversation of always trying to keep an athlete in shape. So if you can get someone doing some activity that they can tolerate at a sub-threshold level, then essentially it really is the graded exposure we talk about a lot. And then once they can tolerate that low load intense or low intensity aerobic exercise is starting to build back into sport specific, then non-contact and then return to sport. See, I thought for sure, like when, when you lit up, <laughs> when I asked you about this, I thought for sure you were going to say, yeah, they actually found that Nordic hamstring curls were. <laughs> <laughs> Derek's, Derek's uh, pet, pet exercise. No. Um, yes. Yeah. I, I think actually it makes a, a really good case for using something like RPE uh, or other auto regulation techniques in order to sort of like grade the load that somebody can expose themselves to while also encompassing all of the different variables going into that athlete's uh, readiness to, to train that given day. So if you have somebody who's, you know, four days out from a concussion and you're like, that's going to be their first day back in the gym, at least you're thinking about it, you know, and you have them, you say that they're going to squat. I mean, just theoretically. And, uh, you know, let's say that they're a 140 kilo squatter, they can squat 308 and they, they load up 40 kilos, 88 pounds and they do, you know, whatever the set is. And they go, honestly, that felt pretty bad, hard, I don't feel very good. And you're like, okay, so you maybe your RPE rating for that would be higher. And that's, you know, okay, that's enough for the day. You set a limit versus like, well, I know there's light for you, so go up. Well, everything we know basically says that athlete subjective report is one of our most valid criteria for really determining things. But it's interesting in terms of concussion because what's been shown a few times is there's some concern that athletes actually will not disclose their symptoms as a means of trying to expedite their return to sport. Right. So it is the focus on getting that honest RPE out of them. Right. Right, right. Uh, Derek, thank you so much for joining us here on the uh, research review. Uh, anything that you want to leave the listeners with? 
No, I, I think our closing moment would really be just to appreciate the fact that we are getting better in the management of athletes who are suffering concussion. And you can't necessarily compare some of the data points that are currently being talked about in social media and pop culture to what is the current state, because there has been an evolution of the game that has certainly factored in athlete well-being much more. Perfect. Cool, man. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Once again, I've been your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. We appreciate you listening. If you're over on iTunes, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast. Hope you guys enjoyed this one. And again, if you want to subscribe to this research review and this uh, edition drops tomorrow, make sure to head over to the barbellmedicine.com website. Link is in the description below. Enter the code research. Get half off at first month, regular payments thereafter. We hope you guys enjoy it. See you.